to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss prudent practices and primary resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Really glad today to be with Herb Bateman. How are you doing, Herb? I'm doing well, thank you. Yes, sir. Hey, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm excited to talk about the book of Jude. I want our audience to know Herb has got a PhD in New Testament studies and uh, has kind of two major points of focus in his uh, career right now. He's the president of the Cyber Center for Biblical Studies, which we will link to. We'd love for you to check that out and see what he's been doing there. And he's also an acquisitions editor for Kriegel Publishing. Um, they've been putting out some good work. Definitely check into that. Um, Herb, I'm really glad that we're here to talk about this today. You recently released a, a new commentary through Lexham Press, the Evangelical Exegetical Commentary Series, on the book of Jude. That's correct. Okay, I'm glad. I would I felt really embarrassed if that wasn't correct. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, yes, the digital, the digital version came out in 2015, and the hard copy version uh, came out in 2017. You know, I am... Um, I'm I'm impressed by what Lexham's been doing with this. I like these EEC commentaries. Now you've been working in Jude for a while, right? Uh yes. So t- tell me this, just to start off, would you say, and I think I might know the answer here, but would you say that Jude is neglected in study and research? Well, I I think I would word it differently. I I think uh, the way that I would like to look at it is I think Jude is neglected as a book from which anybody preaches from. Mm. But when it comes to the study of Jude, I think um, when you pick up a commentary on Jude within a commentary series, naturally Jude and Second Peter are going to be studied. But what Jude reflects in these studies is a lot of regurgitation and intermingled conclusions of previous studies Hmm. and um and you as you start to study jude you start to see well uh this view isn't too much different from this view you're just moving things around so there's two prominent views a gnostic view and a christian false teacher view but as you're looking as you read the commentators they share their evidence and and it's intermingled regurgitated studies uh, from from previous commentators and, and, and studies over the years. Hmm. So maybe we would say neglected in original research, perhaps. Now, you bring up kind of an interesting point. Um, in commentary series, a lot of times we see Second Peter and Jude lumped together. Obviously, there's, there's some major similarities here, but you're going to highlight a little bit the differences. Am I right? That's correct. Now, and that kind of brings us to the bulk of what I want to talk about here. There's a lot of different areas of your research and study and work that we could focus on. But thinking here about Jude, there's one major thing to discuss, and I want to give it as much time as we can for you to outline here. You have a pretty unique view as to the occasion of the book of Jude. Uh, That's correct. Now, would you mind filling us in a little bit on that? Uh, Sure. Um, One of the things that... um evangelicals uh, that uh, they tend to highlight when they provide their uh, introductory type material concerning authorship, place of writing, date. Many of the uh, many commentators, evangelical commentators, recognize that Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote the book 
that he wrote it to Christians in Judea and somewhere in the 60s, early, late 50s, early to mid 60s. And now I want to make sure, I want to, you know, I'm not saying every evangelical commentator says this, but there are several that do, and I happen to agree with the evidence that's uh, proposed and stated within those commentators. So when I stop and I think about historically what is happening in Judea when Jude is writing, uh, whether you take it late 50s to mid 60s, um, there in Judea you have a lot of discontent manifesting itself in Judea against Rome. There is this uh, growing desire to rebel and revolt against Rome. And in the process, as you work your way through what is going on historically, uh, particularly after 62, you have messiahs rising up and, and uh, false messiahs claiming to be the messiah to to lead uh, the Israelites or the Judeans into victory against Rome. Well, with that historical background in mind uh, and those events going on, I ask myself, well, wait a second. If that's the historical context, if Jude is writing to Judean believers, if Jude is writing in the uh, in the 60s, and I happen to believe that he is writing after James has died. Um, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he is killed in 62, or it is surmised. And I think there's a leadership vacuum, and there's this need to respond to an issue going on in Judea. And Jude, who was one of the elders working along with his brother James, rises up and writes this letter to the Judean churches uh, concerning um, the events that are going on in Judea. And the events uh, correspond or are in conjunction with uh, the revolts, the rising revolts and tensions going on in Judea against Rome. And what Jude appears to be saying is, don't get involved in the rebellion. So, um, uh, and there, uh, and I'll just leave it there. Uh, I'll let you, um, I'll let you ask hmm. your next question. But that's okay. for clarification. If there's any clarification that needs to be done, there's a lot that I could say, uh, but I'm just I'm being succinct and just putting it within that context. Sure, yeah. And I what I hear is mostly a concern or an elevation in priority of historical background for understanding the polemic. Um, you, you use the word vituperative quite a bit in that introduction. Am I even saying that word right? Yes. You know, I had I, I, I had to look it up. I thought that I was somewhat educated and I had to I had to go make sure that I understood what vituperatively meant. Um, this harsh kind of polemical deriding uh, tone, which other commentators will note about Jude, but you're saying that he's aiming that at a very different group of people, these zealots. Right. Now, then tell me, what, what would be the implications? If that's the case, if that's really who he's aiming at, if that's what's going on, how does that change the way we interpret the book? 
Well, yeah. well, first off, um, if it's about rebellion, um, you're going to be looking, you're going to be focusing and 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 seeing rebelling coming, uh, uh, rising to the surface. One of the one of the challenges that I had with the um, false teacher, the Christian false teacher view, or even the Gnostic false teacher view, is is that there's no false teaching in there. Um, there it, there is no mention of a of a false teacher. No uh, pseudo prefixed words to nouns like nouns, false teacher or false prophet. You have them in Second Peter. But you don't have them in Jude. The predominant theme, uh, particularly in the middle of the book, in um, verses 5 through 8, Jude talks about past rebellions. And then when you look at um, uh, Jude uh, 8 to 16, he's talking about present rebellion and how that's going to be eventually punished. So the, 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 the focal point of the book, the... the Middle section of the book, verses 5 through 16, talks about rebellion. And so when I think about, well, wait a second. If Jude is concerned about rebellion, and he's talking about not getting involved, I mean, you know, revisiting history and how God deals with rebellion in the past, uh, whether it be God's people whether it be angels, whether it be Gentiles. God doesn't like rebellion, and he punishes rebellion. That's verses 5 to 7. Then he moves to contemporary godlessness, contemporary rebellion, bellers, compares them with people in the past, and ultimately gets to the point where it says God will punish rebellion. And I say, okay, if that's the theological theme rising to the surface in the middle of the book, which I happen to see as being somewhat chiastic. What's going on in Jude? I mean, in Judea? Well, you've got this rise, this tension, this, uh, uh, this um, movement to rebel against Rome. And Jude is saying, don't get involved. Um, and it's interesting in verse 4, where Jude describes these godless as people who do not accept Jesus as both Lord and Master. Now, if you go to Josephus and you look at how Josephus describes the zealots, um, he talks about uh, how the zealots had this motto, that they refused to submit and call anyone Lord and Master. It's a sign of it was their was their motto. It was a sign of their protest about re- submitting to Roman authority. And so I say, wait a second. So we have a parallel statement, one that is stated by the zealots, and we have Jude describing these godless, godless as being people who refuse to call anyone God and Master, or they refuse to call Jesus God and Master. Well, there, there's a verbal parallel. There's a, there's a slogan that, that appears in Jude, and it appears in Josephus' description about the zealots. Hmm. And for me, 
Based upon that parallel, that, that slogan that appears in both works about a group of people, though not specifically named in Jude, based upon the rebelling that's going on between 62 and 66 prior to the full uprising against Rome, and the theme of rebelling that seems to be going on, I think what Jude is saying is, uh, or the context in which he's writing is, the historical context of a Jewish rebelling against Rome, the zealot rebelling. Um, all, all books have a historical context. Uh, all, you know, otherwise, you know, why write the letter? Why write a book? When you look at a biblical if you look at a biblical book of the Bible, those authors are writing to address an issue. What is that issue? Sometimes it's clearly stated and sometimes it's not. And as you read through the text, these issues rise up and they and and depending on how uh, some other interpretations go on concerning historical background, these issues are the thrust and the foundation upon which to uh, to examine a book like the book of Jude. Uh, Jude focuses attention on rebellion. I am happy and, and agree with authors, evangelical authors, that see Jude as being written by Jude, written to Judean believers, and written between 62 and 66, or you want to put late 50s to 66. Many just put it at 62 to 66. If I, if I agree to those presuppositions, and I agree and see rebellion as being the thrust of the book of Jude, then I need to ask myself, what is going on in Judea during that period of time? And what we have is a, a, a national revolt arising in Judea. Now, prior to the 60s, you had minor skirmishes throughout the country. But when you get to 62 to 66, there, there are these skirmishes that are happening are becoming more and more nationalized. They're being more and more uh, um, spread out and joined by not just men and, and religious uh, uh, leaders. I mean, people are joining in men and women. And um, so this is a national revolt against um, um, Rome. And Jude is saying, look, this is not our battle. Uh, and he says, we know who our Lord and Master is. We know the kingdom of God has been established. Um, this is not about establishing and, and reinforcing God's kingdom. This is this is their own personal self-interest um, uh, kingdom. And of course, you see these self-interests manifesting himself in Jude 11 when it talks about uh, Cain, uh, Balaam, and Korah. He describes these uh, these godless as being like Cain, who, when you read extra-biblical material, you see gr greed rises to the surface as to what Cain's problem was. When you look at Balaam, Balaam, you've got this issue of greed. When you look at Korah, greed for authority, because uh, in, in, in his rebellion against 
Moses. You've got three greedy people being highlighted in verse 11, and the godless are saying, uh, are manifesting this idea of greed. And when you go and look at the high priests of the period during which Jude writes, they are described as being greedy individuals. And Josephus talks about the greed of the, the high priests and, and high priestly families and, um, and how it's affecting uh, the people in Judea. As a matter of fact, there becomes a have and have not segment of uh, priests within Judea. And the have-not priests rebel against the have-priests. And so this you, you've got a lot of historical turmoil, a lot of rebelling going on in Judea. And, um, and Jude is saying, don't get involved in this. Jesus is our Messiah. And um, uh, they're fighting a battle that does not concern us. Stay out of it. Hmm. Now... When I first started to to read through some of your introductory comments here in the commentary and thinking about this, it seemed at first like, man, we're 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 just gonna apply this to every little bit of Jude. I mean, are are we really just overdoing it here? Should we be a little bit more cautious with how we apply it? But but it occurred to me that when I read other works on Jude, I even you know look at the. Um, uh, the paragraph titles in an English translation, maybe, of Jude. The assumption that these are false teachers, whether Gnostic false teachers or Christian false teachers, is also read in. And so what that what that does, in, in my thinking here, is it highlights the importance of these background questions, where, where normally I would say, let's just be humble with that. There's not much, you know, we can know for certain about that, and it doesn't really make a huge difference for how we interpret it anyway, I hear you saying, and I think I've come around to at least this viewpoint, that how, how we do identify these opponents will have an import on how we understand, maybe not all the principles or maybe the points of application or even the points of theology that we could draw from it, but really how we interpret every little bit of Jude is already being informed by who we think these opponents are, whether that's a false teacher view or a zealot view. And I know we talked a little bit about this, but um, would you advocate for that? Would you say, let's think about the historical background and let's, let's think about each verse in light of who these opponents are? I think one of the reasons why historical backgrounds does not come to the forefront for many people is because we don't study first century history very well. Mm. And um, there are several books that um, that would be helpful in this area. Um, one would be uh, uh, Martin Hengel's book on the Zealots. And he gets into the historical background of the Zealots during this period of time, uh, which begins in the AD, 60, uh, AD 6 and runs through 73. And he's constantly interacting with primary sources like Josephus. And I think another um, uh, difficulty we have is that we really don't understand Josephus. Uh, we tend to look at him as purely a historical source, but he is a historical source, but he has a literary theme and literary uh, design for each one of his works. And this is where um, Steve Mason uh, 
is extremely valuable for reading because he helps put Josephus and uh, highlight those uh, historical themes or literary themes in Josephus for each one of his writings. So you get a better feel for what Josephus is addressing. And his one book, Josephus, Judea, and Christian Origins, Methods and Categories, is extremely helpful. Um, Another thing that we tend to be unaware of, or another item or subject, um, concerns the high priests uh, during the late 50s and um, mid-60s and their corrupt nature. And James Vanderkam uh, from Notre Dame has a book entitled From, Jos- uh, from Joshua to Caiaphas, High Priests After the Exile. And he does an excellent job in tracing the high priesthood and the, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly about the high priesthood uh, in Judea. So these, these are a couple historical or a couple of not primary sources. They're secondary sources to help bring to light the importance of primary sources. One other book I'd like to recommend is one that I did with Daryl Bach and Gordon Johnston entitled Jesus the Messiah, Tracing the Promises, Expectations, and Coming of Israel's King. And this is taking that theological theme of Messiah. How was Messiah understood in the Old Testament? Gordon Johnston deals with that. How does the Second Temple period in the non-biblical uh, uh, literature, Qumran, uh, Pseudepigrapha works. How is Messiah understood in those uh, non-canonical works? And then Daryl Bach picks up and talks about the coming of Israel's king and how Jesus has fulfilled um, God's promises. But with uh, understanding there's an escalation of what was understood in the Old Testament, what was predicted or being taught in the Second Temple period to what became reality in the New Testament. So I think some of these backgrounds, I don't, I don't think we really spend enough time understanding the background in which the historical background in which the New Testament is written, and therefore we tend not to appreciate uh, the historical realities that these authors are facing and addressing when they write their letters or they write their works. So, so they would, these would be a few sources that I think would be helpful for uh, people that want to study um, um, the book of Jude. How do you think that comes out? I mean, you've already walked us through. Here's what he's saying, and here's how it, it applies to them. Uh, what does that mean then for the Christian in the pew? So this oh, commentary okay. series especially— is going to to lend itself to those who want to yes understand the book of Jude, but also to teach or preach it. Um, what points of application may there be for us today if this view is correct? This is essential. This is an essential question because you want to understand a pericope, a passage of scripture in its historical context, and what it was that these original readers were addressing. What were they facing? Why is Jude writing this? And you you need to identify what that historical setting was so that you can make a one-to-one jump to today. What they have faced are issues that issues they faced 
are similar to issues that we face. So when it comes to, um, so when you when you stop and think about rebelling in five to seven, where um, Jewish people reject God's leading and God punishes um, uh, by physical death, angelic beings reject God's designated placement for them in the heavens, and he imprisons and, and throws them out of heaven. When you think about Gentile people who reject God's design for social behavior, and there's a total destruction of their urban cities and their inhabitants, the theme that's coming on, it's pretty universal. Whether you're, a, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a celestial being, whether you're a Gentile, if you rebel against God, God punishes. So, that's the theological theme. Is that true today? Um, you know, and, uh, and in my application for this particular uh, section, um, I, I write... A word learned very early in a child's life is no. In fact, the word favored and well used by every two-year-old is it's a favorite word for a two-year-old. So you say, let's go upstairs to take our bath and go to bed. No. Stay on the sidewalk. Don't go into the street. No. And so I give examples where two-year-olds are constantly saying no. But yet, what's important is you, you become, as a parent, consistent in the manner in which you discipline your child so that they learn not to say no and that they don't rebel and that they obey commands. That's what God is doing in these passages. Hmm. There's a two-year-old in every one of us where we want to say no. No, no. And God works in our lives and patiently works with us and is consistent in the way in which he leads and helps us to mature in order to be the godly people he desires us to be. So there's always, what is the passage saying? And how does it, what's going on in the historical context? Uh, he is talking about past rebelling how does this apply to us today? Well, we all struggle with this. When it talks about, um, uh, um, so, I th so I think it's always important to try to put things in its historical context and interpret it within its historical context to explain what it is that Jude is trying to address in order that we can make one-to-one -one correspondence to um, today. Uh, and so, um, so anyway, that's, that, sure. I think, is really important for when it comes to um, uh, interpretation uh, within a historical context. And I can, I can share another one where in Jude 8 through 16, I guess it's the latter part, where Jude says punishment is coming and it's coming to everyone. Uh, Jude is focusing on the godless and how and, and the way in which they are being godless and demonstrating godly godlessness in his historical context. Uh, and these are social injustices. So Jude is concerned about the social injustices that are going on in his day 
as signs of rebelling against God. And so the question we ask, do we today have social injustices? Social injustice, I say in my commentary, permeates every corner of the world. Global social uh, justice issues, the sex trade in Thailand, forced labor in China's children, mistreatment of women in Muslim countries like Iran are readily condemned by Americans as a form of oppression. Then I transfer from a general form of social injustice to how evangelicals practice social injustices. And I give several examples. To make that clear one-to-one correspondence from the passage within its historical context to today, that point becomes much more poignant to us. And I find it very interesting that when you think of Jude as being for false teachers, seldom would this book ever be preached. Hmm. Because Christian evangelicals go, I'm not a false teacher. Well, let's talk about rebellion. If this book is really about rebellion, are we struggling with rebellion? When we think about how evangelicals are viewed by non-evangelicals and non-Christians, we're hated. We are not well-liked. And there's a reason. We're hypocrites. Because we, 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 we do not address social injustices within our own community uh, very well. So anyway, I think when you interpret the book of Jude within its historical context, and you can identify what it is that Jude is addressing in his context, you can make a one-to-one transfers into today uh, in a much more solid and meaningful way uh, to allow the word of God to be sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, as I think about um, our our listeners who may be in a uh, preaching situation, teaching, um, I would encourage them to pick up the book of Jude, research these things, and and think about uh, ha- have a firm conviction on on some of these background issues as far as you can understand the different points. Um, make up your own mind as far as that's concerned. But I think about the value of good exegesis and especially of expository preaching, and I think to myself, regardless of the occasion, um, verses like this, um, uh, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit, but you beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. If, if we're going to take seriously what's being said here, even maybe with a little bit of humility about what we can and, and can't know for certain about the background, these points that you're making, they're, they're going to come out because we also have the rest of scripture. We can, use this um, analogy of faith and understand what's going on. And so uh, I, I'm I'm really encouraged by your commitment to the historical background here. I'm excited to, to hopefully hear and see more about the book of Jude and others who are picking it up and, and trying to best understand it. I think its message, as you've said, is relevant, absolutely, um, for us and for um, our children and for our children's children. I don't think that um, it's going to return void. I do want to, to shift real quick, though, 
as we wrap this episode up to some of your other work. I know that you, you like we said, you do a lot for Kriegel Publishing, but you're also working with the, the Cyber Center for Biblical Studies. If you wouldn't mind, real quick, just share with us a little bit of what you're doing there and how our listeners might benefit from that resource. Well, the Cyber Center for Biblical Studies is um, has it, it has an umbrella of um, opportunities or uh, events or um, things that we do. We have a we have a resource video page um, on my Cyber Center for Biblical Studies uh, website. There is a page for videos are videos and generally they are book reviews they are video book reviews of um current works that may be helpful for a a pastor or a teacher and they are reviewed by pastors uh who pastor in northern indiana so there's over 100 videos there uh on uh, books and um um written by authors or reviewed by authors so that's one uh, aspect or one arm of the Cyber Center for Biblical Studies. The other arm of uh, the Cyber Center for Biblical Studies is publications. And here's where um, we publish um, books or booklets that correspond to a conference that we hold yearly. I'll come back to that. The other books that we published are books for students uh, who may be um, learning Greek or taking Greek, and um, it's a series called Translating uh, the New Testament. And these are books for translating a book of the Bible clause by clause. Thomas More did um, translating Philippians clause by clause. Aaron Peer and I did translating John, uh, 1 John clause by clause. Um, we have uh, Ben Simpson doing translating Ephesians clause by clause. So uh, these these books are, help, are are meant to help a student translate um, uh, New Testament books of the Bible. The third arm of the Cyber Center for Biblical Studies is a fall conference we held yearly in northern Indiana. And we invite people um, that are uh, well-known in their area of study to come and share with lay people um, uh, their their understanding of books of the Bible. We want to help lay people read the book of the Bible with understanding one book at a time. So we've had Daryl Bach come in and talk about the Gospels. We had Mark Strauss come in and talk about Luke Acts. We've had uh, George Guthrie come in and speak on Hebrews. We've had um, Bob Chisholm come in and speak on Isaiah. We have... Um, um, uh, we have a, a woman coming in this fall uh, to speak on Ruth. And and it's a two-day or it's a Friday night, Saturday morning uh, sessions, uh, five sessions that we record. And they are placed on, uh, on the website under conferences. And the, there are corresponding booklets to go with each one of those conferences. So... The um, under publications, you'll see booklets that are that correspond with our conference uh, video series. And so um, so we have a yearly conference for lay people. We have publications uh, that that correspond with the videos as well as help students with 
reading or translating the New Testament. And then we have a video resource um, page for pastors and teachers to um, to look at and uh, review books. It's it's just like a book review. It's a book review, but instead of having to read it, uh, you're watching it. It's a visual book review. Herb, that sounds great. I, I love that idea with that conference, um, especially lay people getting into and understanding the Bible, having top-notch scholars there. I'm excited to hear more about the 2019 conference. Um, and really, I, I hope that our listeners will dig into the background of the book of Jude, seriously consider um, what you have to say about the importance of the dating to understanding the historical background, the importance of the historical background to understanding um, what Jude was getting at, and then living and applying that today. I really hope that readers will um, take up the book of Jude um, with all its perhaps challenges and questions and, and seek to um, let that bear out in their lives uh, good fruit. I hope they'll check out the Cyber Center for Biblical Studies and learn from what you've been doing there. Really grateful for your work. And Herb, let me just say thank you for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Travis, thank you for having me.